him. And so, remember we talked Christmas Eve, I think we used Jeanette's journal, and then, uh, and then listening before action, right? Peter's ready to kind of set up all these tents. Uh, Peter has proximity, or the disciples have proximity. They're close to Jesus, but they're not really listening to him. They're kind of concerned with their own thing. Um, so the transfiguration is this, this, again, this pivotal moment in the Gospel of Mark. Now, I want to do something in, a little bit more interesting. I want to start off with something I've never done before. I want to share with you a recipe. It's for a loaded cauliflower soup. It's nice. Okay, it's got some, take some, some cauliflower. If you want this, I'll send it to you. It's lean and green, so it's, you know, uh, it's cauliflower, it's zucchini, it's a little bit of onion. You kind of like mash, you put some, uh, some broth in there, uh, maybe a bay, I don't think we usually do the bay leaf. Uh, then you kind of mix it all up. I throw it in my Vitamix, blend it, put some, we put some chicken in it, some, you can put bacon. I don't think we did the bacon on it, but, um, a loaded cauliflower soup, okay? Like a loaded baked potato, but it's cauliflower and it's soup. Now, <clears throat> I made this for my family on not this Thursday night, two Thursday nights ago. And uh, one of my pet peeves, you guys have not even shared my pet peeves about emoji and uh, what else What else is on there? Happy, happy sugar, right? One of my pet peeves is when parents, I, I don't think this is just exclusive to me. All parents, when your children kind of, they don't eat what you put forth in front of them. Amen, right? Um, And they push back on the meals, right? So I make this loaded cauliflower soup. Now, first off, let's just start off straight. If I was a 9, 10, 11-year-old kid, my parents served me cauliflower soup. I'd throw it across the room. So, but I... (laughs) I tend to think of my parenting as more refined than my parents' parenting. So I make this soup, and what happens? My three kids, Julia's okay. She does okay. The other two girls, like, kind of stir it around, like, lick the spoon, like, I'm not hungry, complain, you know. And, again, this is a day after we got off the plane, so we're all kind of tired. I'm irritated. Um, And, parents, you know where this goes, right? Come on, let's get, like, so your kids aren't eating. What's some of the one-liners you're dropping on your kids? Let me see if you can come up with the same one-liners I came up with. Detroit, go ahead. What's the one-liner? Huh? Sending your kid to bed hungry. There you go, right? And then you follow it up with what? Just to confuse them. You'll sit there until you finish it. (laughs) So you say, like, I'm going to send you to bed hungry, and then you follow it directly up with, you will sit there until you finish it all, just to really confuse them, right? So there's two. That's two great lines. What else? This is all you get, no dessert. This is all you get. Oh, no dessert. I didn't think about that one, right? No dessert. Okay, what else? Yeah. I like that. Like that. Come on. What about the starving children in Africa? Right. Come on. Who? Right. What about? Um, <laughs> what about? I've slaved over this meal for hours. Like it was right. Or we worked hard. Your mother and I worked hard to put food on the table. Right. So. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, 
it's oh like and brian i'm like in like i'm not in like nuclear meltdown mode but i'm pretty close my wife's even like eric calm down like you know and i'm like i'm you know i'm already done with mine i'm banging dishes around in the sink you know like throwing a fit and you know like muttering under my breath i swear i'm never making food for these ungrateful children again so i'm like again and this is over cauliflower soup right so <laughs> like we have to so now Everybody, let's take a quick break because I want to get to the punchline of this whole story and these guys are going to distract us. Yeah, look at those handsome boys. There she goes. Okay, let's go positive. Here we go. Here comes a positive moment. So. They eat, I don't know what they even ate that night. If they ate anything, I probably left, bang, you know. So I go to bed a little bit later that night, and on my bedside table, I get a little note from Jeanette. Here we go. This is Jeanette part two. I'm done with her for the rest of the year. I can't keep using my kids as illustrations. She says, to dad from your jabby jaws. Now, first off, that just melts my heart. That's just number one. Then she writes this note. Now, I know it's a little hard for you to read, so I'll read it to you, okay? Dear dad, I truly like the food, crossed out. I truly like the soup. But I was full because on the way home, I ate my burrito that was left over and had a snack while you and Alice went to Costco. Thank you for preparing the meal for, uh, for us. It was delicious. Love you more, Jeanette. Now again, like, let me take, huh? In the picture of us, right? And then we both have love on our shirts. <laughs> and my hair actually is a little bit longer than what I own. So anyway. Now, you know, again, like, melts. And Jeanette, Jeanette's, I said, told, like, Juliet is our best, you know, everybody knows Juliet. She's wonderful. She's taking care of it. Jeanette's the sleeper, right? She's like, yeah. So, anyway, <clears throat> okay, that's a lot. That was long. That's like two thirds of my sermon time. I got to hustle up. So, here's the thing like, children are not, here's the real thing like, children are not autonomous in food choosing and making, right? Parents? Right? Like children. Now, in a healthy relationship, right, there is, there is an inclination towards children. You like want to meet children where they need. You don't feed them cauliflower soup all the time. But, you know, there is that kind of dependence, right, on what they eat. On, I mean, honestly, if they eat, although if they don't eat, then you'll probably get called by CPS. But there is that dependence on kind of on, on child and parent, right? So, that's a really long setup to go to the Bible story, which is, again, this passage about, um, about a man's son who is sick. Let's read this together. Mark chapter 9, verse 11. Um, Did I? Um, let's go 14. I'm sorry. Let's go 14. Okay. 14 through 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who was possessed by a spirit that was robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes, at his, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. 
you a moving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. Just finish it off, girl. Keep going. No, something now. I hate reading You're doing great. Shrieked convulsive and violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. Good, good. Okay, so this passage that we read, and again, this is one of those passages right in the middle of it. I think it's just, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, one of the all-time kind of one-liners of the Bible. I do believe, help my unbelief, right? This passage is a bit different of a healing passage in that it doesn't necessarily pivot on the healing of the man's son, on what Jesus does. Really, the, the passage is about the disciples' inability to do so. And it's not, a, a matter of fact, not just the disciples' inability to do so, but just kind of the way that everyone in this passage is, I would say, unable, right? Which is kind of why I, I, I titled this sermon, Unable, right? Everybody in this passage is pretty much unable to really take um, any, any step forward, right? Um, uh, and I think, you know, again, one of the things that was pointed out in the commentaries, you know, again, one of the key words that if you kind of look at this passage that gets used over and over again, and it's not necessarily translated directly into the English, but it's this kind of concept of being unable, right? This Greek word of being unable, right? Uh, so, so much good stuff, and I want to share a few quotes on this. A guy named uh, Christopher Marshall says it like this. He says, he says, presumably, this is a long, a little bit difficult quote, and I'm going to summarize it at the end in a sentence. Presumably, the disciples had come to regard their power to heal and exercise, and that's not like, you know, do exercise to remove demons, as their own autonomous possession rather than being a commission from Jesus to carry out his delegated authority afresh each time through dependent prayer. Mark is suggesting then that self-confident optimism may feel like faith, but it is in fact unbelief because it disregards the prerequisite of human powerlessness and prayerful dependence on God, right? Let me summarize this. The kids thought they were autonomous in their meal choices, right? So this is what's going on with the disciples. They thought that they were, like, just as my kids think that they are autonomous in their meal choices, right? They're not. It's dependent on what my wife and I decide, for the most part, right? The disciples have this thought that they are autonomous in the way that they are going to do and carry out ministry, right? And they're not. Um, When they are caught up short, 
right? When they kind of hit this wall and they're arguing with the Pharisees about why they, you know, whatever that argument is about what the Pharisees, they're trying to do it. The Pharisees, teachers of the law, probably, you know, oh, you're not doing it right. Or you're not doing this or you can't do it or all those sorts of things, right? So they're having this, when they're caught up short, right? In that moment, they really learn that they don't have this autonomous power, right? Even though Christ has commissioned them, right? They think that they can just kind of go and dispense it at will. Um, they learn that the power that they have is renewed afresh each time through what I say with the most important part we do in the morning. It's through prayer, right? Keller says it like this. He says, he says the disciples tried prayerless exorcism for the same reason that they couldn't understand why Jesus had to die. They didn't see how weak and proud they were. They underestimated the power of evil in the world and in themselves. And that kind of last part of that first, par- that first sentence, they didn't see how weak and proud they were, is so telling to each person sitting in this room. Because people in this room, myself included, spend most of our lives trying to be strong and per- pretend that we're humble. <laughs> right? We try and have this strength project this strength, right? And we think that, oh no, pride, that's not a problem for me. No, no, I'm not proud, right? I'm, I'm a humble person. But really what Jesus, is, the disciples didn't see how weak and proud they were. And probably for the most part, that is a major blind spot for folks sitting in this room, again, myself included, right? We are, we, are, we really are weak and proud, right? And we underestimate the power of evil in the world and in ourselves, right? So, a big aspect of this narrative, and again, I think this kind of whole concept of being unable, right, is no matter where you enter this story, right, you kind of hit this limitation, this, this you're unable, this inability, this lack. So you might kind of read this, pair, this story and you're like, you kind of feel like a disciple. And think about the disciples in this passage. They're struggling with their faith that isn't working, right? They're, they're kind of in this moment of like, they're trying to do this, this demon casting out. It's not working, right? Here come the Pharisees, the teachers of the law to kind of rub it in their faces, to argue with them. And maybe you feel like a disciple right now. Your faith isn't working. The, the sorts of things that you're trying to do, again, that kind of unable, that inability, that lack. Maybe you feel like the father, right? Maybe you enter the story as like a father where you're desperate for someone that you love, Right? You have someone in your life who's suffering, who's struggling, who's hurting, and you're desperate for that person, and you're really resonating with that at the moment. Right? Maybe you enter the story, probably not many, but maybe as you're reading this, um, you could enter in as like the sun. Right? And in some senses, you might feel dirty, disheveled, um, f- foaming at the mouth, again, all kind of figuratively. Right? You have these burn marks, you're, you have these bruises, you're confused, you're just beat up. Right? You've been beat up, and you don't even quite know why you're being beat up. You're, something's kind of taken over you, right? The crowd is there, right? The crowd's kind of like, just, they're observing. They're a non-participant. They're kind of afraid, right? They're not doing anything. They're not helping this person. They're just kind of standing around, not doing, not really taking, right? So no matter where you enter this story, unless you enter the story as Jesus himself, which that's a whole other <laughs> sermon. Oh, yeah, I see myself in, as Jesus in this, right? <laughs> Um, and wherever you, you we, we kind of hit a wall, right? You kind of hit that, that limitation of like, ah, I, I, I don't know what, I'm like kind of, I'm unable, right? Again, inability, lack, 
right? So um, the question then I'm thinking like, okay, like we all experience this. And again, this is what Jesus is saying. It's like, you're weak, right? All of us in this room, we are weak, right? And we're all proud because we think that, oh, I can just, I can do this. I can pull myself up by the bootstraps. I know the techniques. If I do this and that, right? But the real antidote, right? The real place that we find our ability, right? Anybody want to take a guess? God? Humility? Humility? It's in the text. Two things in the text. Prayer. Prayer. And the other one's a little bit trickier. Faith, right? Faith and prayer, right? Um, and, you know, t- those, it's the same coin. It's just two sides, right? Prayer and faith, right? If you're someone of faith, you're praying. You're, you're a person of prayer. If you're praying, right, you're putting your faith, your trust in something. It's the same coin, two sides, right? So this, this two kind of things of, of faith and prayer is what is, so to speak, it's the antidote, right? It, it's what makes us able. It's what makes us really see who we are, right? It's how we kind of really move into this world with any sort of, if you want power, right? If you want any sort of strength, if you want any sort of humility, you'll find it in faith and prayer, right? Those are the two things. So Tim Gombas had a, a great, a, a fantastic definition for faith. You know, a lot of times we just think about faith as just kind of like, I believe random thoughts about God and that's what faith is. Gombas says it like this, and, and that's part of it, but that's not the full thing. He says it like this. I really like this definition from his commentary. He says, he says, faith involves a conviction that what the scripture says about the identity of Jesus, right? And the reality of the kingdom of God is true. And this entails a complete reordering of one's life around this reality, right? Pause there for a second. Faith involves a conviction that what the scripture says about the identity of Jesus, Jesus is the son of God, right? And the reality of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is available. It's at hand. It's near, right? We have access to that, right? What God wants done, where you want to live in his kingdom. And this entails a complete reordering of our life around those realities. That's what faith is, right? Faith is is an intellectual activity, right? I have to think in my mind. I have to conceive and know the realities of Jesus and the kingdom and see that these are real. So it is an intellectual activity. He says faith has a volitional dimension. Volition involves your will, involves your choosing, it involves the way that you are able to decide. It has a volitional dimension. I inwardly own these realities and confess them publicly. Faith is active in that I am loyal to King Jesus. And again, I'm reconfigure, reconfigure, I would like to say reconfiguring my life so that it's wrapped up into his kingdom purposes and projects, right? That's what faith is. I love that definition about faith. And again, this passage shows us, one of the, I mean, the, the, one of these fantastic one-liners, it shows us this natural struggle that we all have in this with faith, right? This kind of concept of, and I, I've struggled with it, right? God, I believe in you, but I, I doubt. I struggle. I have unbelief. I have uncertainty, right? God, I believe in you. Can you help my unbelief? Um, the message says, uh, it says, then I believe, help me with my doubts, right? And what's so great about this is <laughs> Jesus doesn't shoo this away, right? Normally you would, you know, if somebody were to, were to come to you and said, hey, I, you know, I, I want to be like your, 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 I want to be like your apprentice. And you're like, eh, 
you know, you're kind of like on the fence. You're kind of wishy-washy. You don't, you don't really believe in me. You kind of think that, you know, you're like, nah, but somebody comes and says, I really believe in you, but I have all these doubts about you as well, too. And Jesus says, well, I like that, <laughs> right? I like that. And Garland, as he's talking about this, he calls it, I love this phrase, he call it, called it a repentant unbelief, right? A repentant unbelief. There's a contriteness, there's like an apology, there's a remorseness about that lack of faith, right? We are, people sitting in this room, again, we project this strength. We think that sometimes we're strong in our faith. And really, we're just like this man who comes to Jesus and says, I'm weak. I have this, this mustard seed faith, but you got to help me with it, right? One of the other things I, I really loved about this concept of faith, I've never thought about faith in, in this term before. Um, just a brand new thought for me came from reading some of N.T. Wright's uh, commentaries. N.T. Wright says this. He says that people often suppose that the early year, years of a Christian pilgrimage are the difficult ones, and that as you go on in the Christian life, it gets more straightforward. He said, the opposite is frequently the case. Precisely when you learn to walk beside Jesus, you are given harder tasks, which will demand more courage and more spiritual energy. Did we suppose that following Jesus was like a summer holiday? And I never thought about my faith actually becoming increasingly difficult in my life, right? I, you know, I was thinking about uh, like a graph, right? You think about, you know, here you are, here we go. Robin, here we go, math time, right? Here you are in, um, let's say, let's say this is faith and let's say this is years, right? And you start off as a new Christian down here and you have like just a little, you have that little bit of faith, right? But then as you kind of, you know, get on in the years, your faith just goes like this, right? And what N.T. Wright's saying is, you know, probably you kind of start, you know, here with young years, right? And if this is your kind of level, this, this kind of doesn't work as well too, but it probably goes a little bit more like this, right? Where faith actually, the longer you walk with God can get more difficult, right? You are, not only as N.T. Wright says, sometimes given harder tasks, Right? Um, you are, I think about as you push into Jesus, again, to think about that spiritual dimension of the resistance that you will face, right? I think about the more that I want to follow Jesus and walk with Jesus, the more it demands of my life, right? Um, so a lot of times, I had, again, I never thought about this with faith because I'm just thinking like this kind of up and to the right mentality. But really when you think about it and it's just like, wow, yeah. And that's true. I've really experienced that to be true, that the more I walk with God, the more I follow God, the more difficult it is to kind of see how that works with, with the Lord, right? So, um, one other thing. Uh, I want to talk about prayer here for a little bit. And I'm going to give you a Christmas present. And then we're going to wrap it up. When I think about prayer, right, um, Here's what, I, here's what I wrote down. We consider it like this, this super duper intense, come on, right? Prayer, your voices are raised, right? You are articulating great theological language using the big words of, of the church, right? There's all that spiritual vernacular. Um, 
and this can be just me processing my own daddy issues of my father praying. But, you know, like I think about prayer and I think about like prayer, prayer, right? It's not like what we do. We kind of sit around and I'm talking to God and real casual, right? Like it's like this real, like, you know, are you with me on this? Like this is like the real prayers of the church, right? Um, Garland said like this in his commentary. So helpful for me to think about this. And I want us to think about this as well, too. He says, he says, the prayer that Jesus has in mind is not merely a pious exercise, right? Rather, it's the sense of a complete dependence on God from which sincere prayer springs, right? Um, and then I loved this line. This line to me was probably the quote of the week for me. One cannot not get ready for the moment by uttering a, uh, by quickly uttering a special prayer. One has to be ready through a prayerful life when the moment comes, right? One has to be ready for a prayerful life when the moment comes. I had just was thinking about this, and I've preached on prayer, and I've talked on prayer, and I've thought about prayer, and I've been praying. I've been a Christian for 43 years now, and, you know, so prayer has been an incredible part of my life. And my question to myself was, like, what would I say to people about prayer? If I were to distill, I don't know, 20 years of ministry, 40 years of walking with the Lord, what would I say? And I had three thoughts that came to mind, just to kind of keep it simple. Um, I would say that prayer is talking with God with space to listen. That's for me. Okay, maybe it's for me, right? Like, my dad might not agree. He, he would agree with that, but, you know, he's also would get all intense on you too. Talking to God with space to listen. Now, how do you do that? How does one do that? How does one talk to God with space to listen? For me, uh, one of the things that I found so helpful in my life is just to take a walk and pray. That's probably, for me, the most, uh, the, the easiest way that I'll naturally connect with, with the Lord in prayer. Um, anybody journal? Any journal? Anybody like kind of write their prayers in journals, right? I could say that could be a very powerful way to connect. Um, I, I know some people have shared that they like to do this in their car, which if we had more people praying in their cars, it would probably be a great, a great thing for our roads, right? Um, that is, a, I think it's a good way, again, talking to the Lord with space to listen, turn the radio off, turn praying, right? Um, maybe you have an area in your house, a seat, a time, a place, right? Again, for me, it's, and you guys hear me pray, it's, I just want to kind of have a really natural kind of conversation with the Lord. I want to go back. I want to just, I want to just kind of have this just general prayerful life to be ready when the moment comes, right? I'm, I don't want to just like, okay, here comes the big moment. I got this funeral I got to do on Saturday. I better like, I better like cram for the, for the final. I want to have a prayerful life for when the moment comes, right? So for me, again, walking, journaling in a car, um, area in the house. I love prayer. I love this kind of way that it's, it's a real self-reflexive nature as we're, you're reflecting, you're talking to the Lord, you're reflecting on that, right? So it's, it's, you're kind of listening and then the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, right? It's, it's all of these things kind of piled up into one. Uh, so if I were to say it was prayer, just talking to God with some space to listen, right? Um, the second thing I would say is, I've found, you know, again, when I don't want to go into full, like, prayer request mode, right? I found simple, repetitive prayers to be really helpful. Uh, we'll talk about the Jesus prayer in a couple weeks, which is, uh, comes from Mark ten fifty two, when Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus is by the roadside begging, and he cries out, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner, Right? 
You kind of repeat that, Lord Jesus Christ, and that kind of encapsulates so much. Have mercy on me, a sinner, right? Maybe a prayer is you just pray Psalm 23. You pray parts of Psalm 23, right? You just kind of think about Psalm 23. Again, simple, just repetitive. Jesus teaches us how to pray. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, right? Hallowed be your name. I think that what this man says in this passage is a beautiful prayer. Imagine if you just sat down with the Lord and you considered all the things that you have going on in your life. Right? God, I believe in you. But help me where I don't. Help my unbelief. Right? Help my untrust. God, I trust in you, but all these areas that I do. And you just kind of sat there for you know, some time and you just said, Lord, I believe in you. Help me where I don't. Help me where I'm lacking. Help me where I'm unable. Help my untrust. Right? Um, I want to come back to that one in a second. And then the last thing I think that's always just really, really helpful for, for me in prayer, however I do it, um, it helps me when my kids are, are not eating dinner <laughs> to go full circle. Lord, thank you that I have healthy children. Lord, thank you that there is food on the table. Or thank you that we're able to provide for our kids. Thank you that we're actually together. Oh, we just got back from a beautiful trip to Spain and I'm complaining about them not eating cauliflower soup. Okay, let's, let's put some things in perspective here. Um, and, and time to express gratitude, right? This sometimes really is helpful for a journal or um, some way to track that, right? Because uh, you, we have to be the kind of, like that is the game changer. I think of prayer is expressing gratitude. Um, so uh, that was like when I was thinking like, okay, what would I say to, if I want to, you know, how do I think about prayer? Talking to God with space to listen, some simple repetitive prayers, expressing gratitude. Um, I happened to be listening to a book this week. Um, and I just happened to be listening, and then there's this whole section on prayer, which I really loved. And so I just went and bought 10 copies of the book. I'm going to give everybody one. It's a Christmas present. I don't know if it's from 2023 or if it's from 2024. Let's say if it's 2023, because I won't even remember. Uh, anybody ever heard a guy named Henry Nowen? Who's Henry Nowen? Fans, I know. No one else? Henry Nowen was uh, like a Catholic priest. Um, he was like, I'm trying to think of an analogy. He's like this, he was like this up-and-comer. This is back in the 80s. Like this up-and-comer in the Catholic Church. Teaching at Harvard, teaching at Yale, teaching at all the big universities. Uh, feels a call from the Lord. And he goes and he does ministry at a, at a mental hospital, at a mental institution, right? And kind of spends most of his life doing ministry in a mental, uh, like just kind of to people in a mental hospital. Did I define that right, Brian? What'd you say? Yeah. yeah. Would you add anything about that one? Uh, I mean, later on, I know you did ministry and with like, uh, just people with special needs. Yeah. Well yeah. Um, and he just speaks from such a, a deep place. So he has this little book and he t it's called The Way of the Heart and it's, it's super short. So it's a good like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna read 50 books this year. Here's one, here's one of them right here. <laughs> Uh, this book, I was thinking, 1981, so I was one year old when this went Henry Allen, and you read this, and you know you're reading a prophet when what they say then speaks today, right? So like I said, I listened to this book over the last week or so, 
Um, and then I started reading it again. He talks about the way of the heart. Sorry, I'm talking too much about this book. Talks about the way of the heart in three ways. Um, solitude, silence, and prayer. Solitude, silence, and prayer. So he talks about the need for solitude, right? Just kind of being by ourselves, by alone. The need for silence, right? He talks about like billboards, how much billboards. And I was telling Robin about this. I was like, what would Nowen say if he was alive 50 years or 40 years later in the midst of all our... And then he talks the last little section on prayer. And he has some great things. Um, the simple repetitive prayer was a little bit out of his book here too. But um, I want to give one to each of y'all. I actually have 10 copies. And so I'm thinking like, uh, who needs one? Um, do you guys have that one? No? Okay. And then you have one. And then I'm like Oprah right now. I feel like Oprah. And one for you. Yeah. You guys. You guys. Johnny, I'll give you one afterwards, okay? And you guys. Morning. There you go. Um, and who am I missing? Anyone? Yeah, you can, you can bang that one out, right? I'll leave one for Robin Jolin. Okay. Um, so, I mean, part of my whole sermon is just, you know, kind of, hey, go read that book. <laughs> like, that's kind of the point. And there's a whole section on prayer. And again, now in... Uh, just a gift. He's, if you like what he's written, there's, he's done a lot of books kind of in this realm. Um, so this is probably one of his more famous ones, but, um, yeah, I think that's about all I got. Uh, let's do a couple questions. The praise of problems, the pushback. Uh, yeah. Where do you go autonomous with your relationship with Christ? Where you kind of just, I got this Lord. I know what I'm doing here. Um, and we just kind of, we just kind of think that we're, we get to eat what we want. Uh, was there a quote or a line that particularly stood out to you this morning? I used quite a few quotes this morning, so maybe there was something that, that stood out to you. Like, like I said, for me, it was, that, um, it was that last line by Garland about kind of being ready for life um, through prayer when the moment comes. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I, I do believe, help my unbelief. Um, and then where do you kind of find yourself praying most naturally like how does that work for you if you're to share about prayer so let's do a little bit of discussion on this and I think what we need to do too is I think we need to get up and get a little bit of blood moving and we need to find some new voices and we need to speak to some new people so you got to get up and you got to because I know we're all like couples together you got to find somebody else you got to go move to somewhere somewhere else in the room and uh, find someone and we'll do a little bit of discussion that way sound good all right